0: It's a lesson that Michael Caine learned when he was a young actor. Rehearsal is the work, performance is the relaxation. So whether it's a speech, it's a webinar, it's pre-recorded for your website, whatever it is, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And then you'll have fun. If your spouse elbowed you at three in the morning, uh, you woke up, no coffee, and said, so, I'll never forget the first time I met Larry Mariotti. It is so programmed into you. Then you can focus on the audience and have fun.
1: Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome seven hatters. In this episode, we speak with Patricia Fripp and dive deep into hat numbers one, three, and four. The soul, the servant, and the entrepreneur. As we brush up on our frippisms and learn how to present on the big stage. Patricia is a true presentation skills expert, a Hall of Fame award-winning speaker, a world-class sales trainer, and one of the most in-demand executive speech coaches. For over 30 years, she has focused on how professionals from all industries can communicate their ideas more effectively. Meetings and Convention magazine named her one of the 10 most electrifying speakers in North America. Kiplinger's personal finance wrote that learning presentation skills from Patricia Fripp is one of the best ways to invest in your success. Patricia was the first female president of the National Speakers Association. She has won or been awarded the CPAE Hall of Fame, CSP Certified Speaking Professional, and the Cavett Award, which is compared to the Oscars in speaking. She is the author of two books and co-author of three others. And in 2019, she was named one of the top 25 women in sales and top 30 coaching gurus. Wow. Let's talk about an incredible career. Patricia states that it doesn't matter how good you are, the world has to know it. So let's find out the ways to discover your voice by welcoming Patricia to The 7 Hats. Patricia, welcome to The 7 Hats.
0: As a woman who loves to wear hats, I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Oh, Patricia... You know, I have to tell you a short story. I recently interviewed Michael Haig, the preeminent Hollywood script consultant who not only worked with megastars like Will Smith on movies such as I Am Legend, but also worked with a mentor of mine, Russell Brunson, on creating Russell's Epiphany Bridge Framework. So in the interview, Michael told the story of meeting you, (laughs) this high level and one of the best presentation experts who he became friends with. But what's interesting is that during that time, and with your assistance, he developed his six stage plot structure that he now teaches Hollywood scriptwriters and marketers and entrepreneurs, right? And that prompted me to ask myself, who is this Patricia Fripp? <laughs> and so I looked you up, and boy, was Michael correct in his assessment. So, I started watching your videos and I was immediately frippitized. <laughs> so,
0: and it's a painless process.
1: <laughs> yes. And so I reached out on LinkedIn and here we are mm. with our seven headers. And I know that we all need to optimize our presentation skills as entrepreneurs. So, shall we get frippitized? Let's that cool with you? In any way you want. Fantastic. Okay, so in that case, let's start back in the beginning to get a little bit of your backstory and understand who Patricia is. So where were you born? And tell us about your childhood.
0: It would be very difficult to understand Patricia Fripp and her brother Robert without understanding where we came from, which is why this is always a good question. I, When I interview people, I always begin at the beginning. My parents met and married and got married in 1939, which was the beginning of World War II. And my father was... A real estate agent in England, their estate agent. So, of course, when the bombs were dropping, no one was buying houses. So my father used to collect rents for owners and he would go in the country and auction off the produce, the chickens, the eggs for the farmers. Because he went on to be a very well-known estate agent as well. That was the entertainment once a month to go to Arthur Fripp's auction sales. Of course, the farmers paid him in food, which it's very difficult for a well-nourished American population to, or even England now to understand what it was like to be on ration books. Because even as a little girl, I remember the first day we went to a sweet shop and could buy as many sweets as we wanted because we no longer needed ration books. Anyway, so my mother became the breadwinner and she worked in a government office in Bournemouth. She would cycle 10 miles to work and back to, say, bus fare, Mm. you know, People in England learned the value of every penny and every orange they could get to eat. However, my father was went on to be a very successful entrepreneur. My mother, who was very flamboyant and vivacious. And I always say, if my mother had been born the time I was, she would have been me because obviously were more opportunities. Now, growing up in a small town in England, in what was, of course, the 50s and 60s, nobody expected much of girls. And my brother, who is one year, one month, two days, 12 and a half hours younger than I am, we have been soulmates from the very moment he was born our entire school holidays we would play together and when we were little we said to our mother when we grow up we get married because we'll never love anyone the way we love each other my mother ex- explained that brothers and sisters don't get married and we said well we'll never get married then and it's funny I never have We plan to live together when we're old. And my brother was a bachelor and planned to be until he met his wife when he was 40. Now, growing up, it was very obvious my brother was very smart. He was always top of the class, always number one. And for me, it was more of an effort to be about 15th in the class of 30. And I thought I'm probably more artistic than academic. So when I was 12 years old, I decided I was going to be a hairstylist. And when I was 15, I began my apprenticeship to be a hairstylist. And my father had to pay the equivalent of $250 for me to go and work for $4.50 a week. Now, if we stop the story there, a couple of situations. When I was 12 and deciding to be a hairstylist, we lived above my father's business premises. And I vividly remember my brother calls this experience a pre-memory. But I was in my dad's office on a Sunday, flicking through the Sunday newspapers. And I was reading the News of the World, which is a bit of a trash newspaper. And they had a picture of a movie star standing at the edge of a plane. Because in those days, you got off and walked down to the tarmac. So she posed as they did. She had a mink coat over her shoulders, a glamorous suit. And I felt rather like an electric charge went through my body. And even now, I can see myself. I can look down and see myself in the office. I knew one day I am going to have a job where I'm going to fly around the world wearing glamorous clothes and mink coats. I had no idea how that would happen because I obviously wasn't gonna be a movie star. In our town, there weren't even business women. They weren't women entrepreneurs, even though my dad, of course, was. Now, my brother, he got his first guitar when he was, I believe it was 11 or 12. He, um, he suddenly, mother bought all our Christmas presents, and they always made a big deal of Christmas, Uh, But she bought all the presents and suddenly wanted a guitar. And we went out to Bournemouth, 10 miles away, uh, and went to the guitar shop. And there were no guitars. And as we were standing there, or there were no guitars that we could afford to buy. Somebody walked in. And said to the owner, I'd like to bring this back and replace it for a much more expensive one. So we got the last guitar that we could afford. And that was Brother's first guitar. And there is a picture on the internet of, of brother and me the first day because he's he he's got his leg kicked up and he says, I've never been that animated ever since playing a guitar because of course he is a seated musician. Anyway, so I went on to be a hairstylist and I came into my own when I went to work. I loved work. Now, becoming a hairstylist was a superb move because one, I had some talent and I loved work. I wasn't so good at school, much though I tried hard, but I I loved work. I still love work. And we in this posh salon, I had the opportunity to develop relationships with rich, glamorous women, people I'd never met meet in my social life. And as soon as I got to know them, I say, what were you doing when you were my age? How did you make your money? Did you make it yourself or did you marry it? If you made it yourself, how did you do it? If you married it, where did you meet him?
1: <laughs> and how did you do
0: it? <laughs> now, Even now, decades later, whenever my brother and I go anywhere, he always says, like, if we met for cocktails, he would say, let me apologize in advance. My sister is going to interrogate you. Well, because I'm genuinely interested in in. All these decades of being behind a hairstyling chair for 24 years, spending decades going to seminars, traveling on planes, meeting people, nobody has ever said to me, that's none of your damn business. Mm. Because everybody loves talking about themselves, especially when they feel it's a genuine interest. You really are interested in learning from them. Well, again, fast forward a few years when I was 20, I came to America, had no job, nowhere to live, didn't know anyone, had $500, and I knew everyone in America was rich and the streets were paved with movie stars. Now, when I grew up years later, I said to my mother, it is amazing that you let, you and daddy let me go at 20 because I'd only ever met people... Two people who'd ever been to America, but whether they'd been to America or not, if you talk about, I want to go to America, everyone said, go to San Francisco. I believed everyone in Kate. And at that age, at 20, I was fearless. It never occurred to me anything would ever go wrong, and it never did. And so it was very new and exciting. And my first job was in the Mark Hopkins Hotel. And it was owned by Gene Autry, the singing cowboy. And of course, my brother and I used to see his movies when we were kids. That hotel was great for a first job because I discovered that hairstylists in America worked 100% on commission. No sick pay, no, no guarantees, no vacation pay. But to me, that was a license to steal. And my boss, Charles had never seen anyone work the way I did because we had holiday makers, people staying in the hotels. So I could stay busy all the time and not have a regular clientele. And he said, Patricia, go back to England and bring, bring over 28 of your friends. I'll become a multimillionaire. And I said, Charles, I never met anyone who worked for me because I worked with gentlemen from the West End of London who were fabulous, but they thought lunch hours for eating lunch, I realized, and this is the entrepreneurial spirit, I realized eating lunch was for squeezing in three or four other customers who couldn't come any other time. Because after my apprenticeship, I lived on an island off France called Jersey, and it was a tax haven. So one day my boss said, Patricia, you earn 30% more income for the salon than the other stylists. Now, the other stylists were being paid a base salary of at least three times mine because they were more experienced. And that's part of going to America. You know, where can you exploit the willingness to work hard? And Well, the colonies.
1: Absolutely. My wife's parents who immigrated from Russia, they arrived in San Francisco uh, as well. My parents who immigrated from Israel in 82 went to New York and somehow we we connected in Los Angeles. But so when you left at 20 years old, were your parents because what did you what did your parents want from you? Like you know, parents always see someone in their kids. What did they what did they want?
0: Well, my mother always said, "Do your best." Because, of course, brother was very smart. And as I say, no one expected anything of girls. I mean, really, they didn't. Just do your best. And I think they were surprised when I passed my 11 plus, when I passed my driving test the first time. I think they were genuinely surprised. Now, as I say, when I asked my mother later, it was amazing you let me go. My mother said, well, your father told me to tell you not to go. And I told him I wouldn't because I had lived away from home for two and a half years. And my dad asked me the questions that I thought about. What if you don't like it? I said, well, I'd come home. Well, you've got a really well-paid job. People love you. And I said, yeah, and they'd have me back again. It was just, you won't be able to call your mother every week. Well, I did. And, And I came into my own here. It was because, and I think it doesn't matter where you were born if you're parents, if your brother are personalities and well-known, at that point, I would always have been Arthur Fripp's daughter. I would have always been Robert Fripp's sister. Going 6,000 miles away from home, I could be who I was destined to be.
1: So Arthur Fripp was a successful entrepreneur. Was it only in real estate or did he venture out to other?
0: Well, he was in in real estate and uh, and an estate agent, but he gave me very good advice. And what I learned from my parents that they didn't say is that you can't be too kind or too generous. Mm -hmm. I, I learned that by their actions, not their words. But my first day I went to work, As an apprentice, my dad pushed me out the door, and he gave me brilliant advice, which I have tried to base all my career and businesses on. One, he said, in your career, don't concentrate on making a lot of money. Concentrate on becoming the type of person that people want to do business with. Then you most likely make a lot of money.
1: That is obviously tremendous advice.
0: Now, what my mother what my mother said is, of course, it's the inner you that counts. However, you have to dress up and look good so that you can attract people and they can find out how nice you are, how smart you are, and how valuable you can be to them.
1: Isn't it amazing how your DNA comprises of both your parents, but then their advice yeah. together together? Mm. If, if taken, because a lot of kids don't listen, but if taken can really mold you into the successful woman that you are today. I mean, if you think about it, your, your family has, I'm sure, worked really, really, really effing hard yeah. to get to where they got to, but they've done it and they've been successful. So, you know, let's move on. Now you're in America, right? And <laughs> You know, Patricia, you have the honor of becoming the first woman president of the National Speakers Association. And if that wasn't enough, you are also in the Hall of Fame as a keynote speaker. So I would assume that you have some experience with presenting Mm -hmm. to an audience, and I'm sure that the seven hatters want to get right into it. So let's start with what got you interested in professional speaking? You were a hairstylist. Was it a natural born gift? What happened at that time?
0: For many people, it's more natural to get up in the first place. However, it's still a practice-developed skill. Even if you have natural talent, you have to learn the mechanics of it. So I really started speaking. When I was 23, I became one of the first women in men's hairstyling when this was a new industry, and you might be too young to remember, but I had the good fortune to work for Jay Sebring, who was Hollywood's number one men's hairstylist. He did all the movie stars here, and he took over our salon. And so I started demonstrating with Jay. Now, your listeners, as I say, depending on their age, might not remember. But Charles, Charles Manson, the Manson family, murdered my boss, Sharon Tate, and their friends uh, because they, they were very good friends. And that was when I became the spokesperson for the salon. Mm. And then I went into business for myself and started traveling nationwide for a hair product company. Now, Because being the entrepreneur that I am, I also had a product distribution business and one of my friends said, you have to take the Dale Carnegie sales course and then public speaking course. And I loved it. So of course I fanned, and I don't care if people never want to be a speaker, most people don't. However, what I did that I would highly recommend everybody do is take advantage of the best, least expensive way to promote your business. And that is to give speeches at the service clubs. Because when I opened my business, it was 1975, there was no internet. However, my executive clientele, because I was San Francisco's number one men's hairstylist, they, when they heard I was giving seminars for hairstylists, they said, oh, I was to my Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, Lions Club, Breakfast Club. After two free t- talks, I realized people who heard me speak came in the salon. So I then trained all my staff to say to their clients, you know, if you get 20 of your employees together, Patricia will come give you a free talk on teamwork <laughs> or customer service or promoting your business. All she asks is, she's just going to tell everyone where the salon is. And I would give away a gift certificate knowing that someone would come in the salon and go back to the group and be checked out by everyone. So many entrepreneurs have come to me and said, help me put together a speech. To give a service club as a part of my marketing. Now, it can't sound like a sales presentation. However, you're part of the promotion. You're part of the, you know, they introduce you. You meet new people. So even though you're not getting paid in money, there's no such entity as a free speech. You're getting contacts. You're getting practice. You know, there are so many benefits. It's worth your time. So that's how I began. And with my friends in the Dale Carnegie class, we used to meet together once a week and we'd call ourselves the Future Millionaires Breakfast Club. We went to every seminar, every rally we heard about. And then we heard about the National Speakers Association. So I'm a great, be- and then a professional speaker, Chris Haggerty was kind enough, I reached out to his office, he came to hear me speak, and he said, you must go to the National Speakers Association Convention. And I'm a great believer, if someone you admire and wish to emulate gives you advice, you don't ask how much does it cost, you do it. So I turned up at my first convention, I was two years into a 10 year lease on my salon, I was 32, thinking no one's going to want to talk to me. I only talk to rotary clubs and, and hairstylists. And two situations appeared. Because here's a frippicism: Opportunity does not knock once. It knocks all the time. We don't always recognize the sound. Yep. So at the NSA convention, so exciting. And you get the idea, you know, I knew becoming a speaker was a long-term goal. And I w- I loved my business. I still had a lot I wanted to do with my own business. But I thought, well, it wouldn't be a bad goal to see if I could become a speaker, be in the position if I wanted to when my lease was up when I was 40. And then I had the opportunity to speak for 10 minutes and a big time promoter came up to me and said, you're the best woman speaker I've ever heard. And, and a month later, he booked me to speak to 2,000 people on the same program with Dr. Robert Shuler, the minister from Garden Grove, who was a very big speaker at the time. So that was the beginning. Then I found many of my clients who, of course, were business executives. They ran companies. So some of them, you know, I started speaking for them. And it's interesting, the first time I spoke for more business forms, my my hairstyling client paid me $75 in business forms. Over the years, as his career developed and he moved around the country, he took me, With him, the last time he hired me, Bob Kessler, his name was, more business forms. So the first time was his team in San Francisco for $75 worth of business forms. The last time I was at a convention, 1,600 salespeople from around the world in Hawaii. Donner Summer was the entertainer. And that was multiple years. So For many years, and and it was a great time speaking, and there was a time when people, speakers bureaus, like the gentleman who hired me, Mike Frank, would say, would you consider a woman speaker? And a lot of people said no. Then it got to the point where we need a woman speaker. Yep because even male-dominated industries had to prove they were modern thinking. And then I believe it got to the time, was it the message, the personality? And and so I was in that time and there weren't that many established women. So in my heyday, I was delivering 120 keynotes a year for years. In fact, in my career, I believe I have probably delivered 35. 100 live presentations on five continents, and now hundreds and hundreds of virtual. But anyway, so so that's how it evolved. Now, all entrepreneurs, whatever business they're in, you have to be be realistic, because Americans, maybe other natures as well, but I'm more familiar with American thinking, because I've been here for so many decades, In America, we suffer from recency bias. In Mm. other words, if the phone is ringing off the hook, you don't think it's ever going to change. If the phone isn't ringing, you can't believe it ever will. And the more time you spend in business... The more time you've been alive, you realize there are cycles this summer, this winter. You know, they're ebb and flow. And if you are working on commission or you have to bring make all the money that comes in your business, you have to learn it won't, you can't guarantee. If you're in the real estate business, don't sell, don't spend all your commission because it might be a few months before you take another. Anyway, so I was smart enough to know. And this is, you know, maybe 20 years of being an in-demand keynote speaker. This isn't, you know, it's unrealistic to think you're going to be the flavor of the month for too many more years with all the speakers bureaus. And then, and this again, whatever business you're in, listen to your customers. They will tell you what comes next. And I'd always invested in myself, screenwriting classes, comedy writing classes, the best speech coaches I could find. I'd always invested in myself to be as multifaceted as I could be in communications and speaking. And then, you know, two conversations really changed my life. I was speaking at a national sales meeting and the national sales manager Hey mom said, Patricia, I liked your speech, but I loved how you delivered it. Can you teach our salespeople to speak that way? Because it takes us a year to be in a position to deliver a one-hour presentation to a hospital board. It's worth $9 million a year if we get the business. And we are losing sales, has nothing to do with our product or our pricing. I keep hearing the sales presentations of our competitors are better than ours. And as I put together that training, little did I know, she had given me the secret of always being in demand, no matter what the economy, and even if I don't look quite as good on IMAG as I might have done 20 years ago. And then the other conversation, I was speaking for a small personnel company 35 miles from my house. Gave my speech, the president of the company gave her speech. We sat down, we were having lunch. And she said, do you do any speech coaching? And because I had hired him, Speech coaches. When people ask, I always said, "Well, go to Dawn Bernhard, go to Ron Arden." And I said, "Well, a little for my friends." And she said, "I wish I was one of your friends." I drove home, and on my answering machine was a voice. "Hello, I don't know if you do this. However, if you do, I want to buy you for my husband for his birthday." And that's exactly what she said. And and then she said, seven of my salespeople came to one of your speaking seminars. And my husband's a very good speaker. However, he has the most important speech of his career. And if you're an executive speech coach, I'd like to hire you. And I thought, hallelujah, God, twice in one hour, I got the message. And I love it. Officially put up my shingle as an executive speech coach.
1: As a speaker in general, uh, whether it's sales or presentations, charisma is obviously extremely important. And I I doubt, you know, I I bet you everybody asks you, were you born with charisma? I'm pretty sure you were born with charisma. Okay. I'm pretty sure that when you first started and you were uh, a hairstylist, you were the talk of the town, but. Not every entrepreneur has charisma. So is it possible to create charisma? Have you seen that? And if so, do you have any tips?
0: Well, you're very kind and generous. And my brother in some of our lectures has talked about the little different levels of charisma. And so, for example, what all entrepreneurs can develop is what my brother would call attributed charisma. So, for example, when you started introducing me and talking about Michael Haig, well, Michael Haig has attributed charisma because he has a personal relationship with Will Smith. Before he was known in the speaking world, because I, I said, you know, <laughs> struggling screenwriters and romance novelists, they don't have as much money as some speakers and entrepreneurs come into my world. So before Michael was known in my world, he had a certain attributed charisma because I promoted him and we worked together. This is why all entrepreneurs use client testimonials because we have, you might never have heard of me, but I have the attributed charisma of some of the executives and high you know high power speakers that I've coached. I would forget charisma and focus on your personality. Hmm. because pers- so I would say, and my brother made the comment because my mother was very vivacious and he said, Sister is the way she is because of mother. And mother became more so because of sister. Because although my mother was the Duchess of Wimborne, because I moved to America, she then had so many experiences coming to America and going back and talking to the women's groups about her trips to America. All right. So look at your personality. Now, it doesn't matter. Some of the most brilliant speakers, would their audiences would be surprised. They're introverts, just as a lot of entertainers are introverts. So it's working on your personality. But the number one lesson for any entrepreneur and any speaker is that we always have to work on one principle. Everyone's more interested in themselves than they are in us. I'll give you an example. Alan Weiss, and again, I have a lot of attributed charisma because for many years I delivered seminars called The Odd Couple with Alan Weiss, who is the consultant's consultant. I mean, he's written well over 50 books. I mean, just an amazing speaker and an introvert. And he says, You know, if you're an introvert, if given a choice to go to a cocktail party or staying home and reading a good book, you'd stay home. And he said, I would rather stay home and read a bad book that I've read before. (laughs) However, his wife, Maria, is very vivacious, drags him to all these fundraising and cocktail parties. And he tells a story about one day. He was at a cocktail party and he said, I have developed the ability to sit and not make eye contact with the waiter and take another another martini. And the hostess of the party was, was seeing him sit alone, not realizing he was perfectly happy alone <laughs> drinking his martinis. Don't talk to me. She sat down and talk, sat next to him. And he said, what do you do for a living? She said, I'm an emergency room nurse. He said, what's an average day for you? One hour later, without saying another word, her husband came over and said, sweetheart, you really need to socialize with some of our other guests. And when they left, the hostess was saying goodbye and said to Maria, oh, your husband is the most fascinating conversationalist. She said, have you met my husband? (laughs) (laughs) And this is the point. And this is why I would say all my hairstyling clients might have said, Patricia has a wonderful personality. She's charismatic. Because I was asking them questions, getting smarter. So in the number one rule when you're putting together any conversation or presentation that's important, is one, why would your audience care? Speak as an audience advocate. So for example, let's look at, if it's a sales conversation or presentation, The old-fashioned world is, hi, my name's John Smith, and I work with the ABC company. We've been in business for 30 years. We have this unique methodology, and we're very proud of our clients who are this, 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 this. We'd love to do business with you. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody gives a damn. In this world, if you are unless it's a cold call, if you are lucky enough to have an appointment with the decision maker, you'll maybe one of three people being considered. They know all about you. They've already compared you. They've so then you begin every conversation with imagine you're there. Congratulations. What? Is your prospect company proud of? Congratulations. I notice your stock price just went up three point. You your major competitor's gone down four. You're making good decisions. Oh, congratulations. Your advertising campaign is spectacular. Talk about them. And then you never thank people for their time. Because everybody does that. And the Frippicism is, if you sound the same as everybody else, you have no advantage. Yep. So you thank people for the opportunity to discuss how Patricia Fripp's sales training may be what you're looking for. Mm. Then if you are at the point where you're talking to the decision maker or a team who is evaluating their offerings, You've probably had someone prepare you for the meeting. Make them look like heroes to their bosses. So thank you for John and Mary. They have been very generous with their time and information. And they tell me your biggest challenges, your greatest opportunities, you're most interested in. How would they call opportunities, challenge, interests? And then you frame your whole sales presentation around what is of interest to them. And you'll sound different and better than everybody else. I
1: I love, I mean, that advice is only advice that can be stated when you have the experience that you have, right? And I think any entrepreneur that's been grinding and beating their head against the wall for 30, 20, 30, 40 years will echo exactly what you just said. So just to reiterate, charisma is great, but focus on personality if you don't have natural charisma. Know your customer, understand who you're speaking with and allow them to speak of themselves because they don't give a shit about you. <laughs> well, and
0: You know, you develop a relationship when they do. However, later. you have to understand the interest <laughs> is more important than making you have a good month.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And then always speak raise and and allow the people who got you to the decision makers uh, allow them to shine yeah and they will then stand by you and propel you to that final yes correct yes okay perfect so within all of that and we mentioned Michael Hague is all story so I believe that storytelling is in our DNA which again is why you know Michael Hague and I gravitated to each other but would you agree that the majority of our entrepreneurs are actually not that great at telling stories? And if so, why do you think that is?
0: Well, I can't speak for all entrepreneurs. However, what I would say is there are a couple of types. Well, there are probably three types of stories entrepreneurs will be well served to develop. So one is what we call the origin story. did your company come about you know i was i was talking to a group these were architects and i was brought in to help them with their presentations when they go out to get business and as part of my my presentation i said who said such and such a quote nobody knew it was their founder in 1964 sorry in Eight, 1864, they found her. It was on their website. Nobody knew. Okay. <laughs> okay. Every, every company, whether they started in the garage or I could tell you my dad's origin story or, you know, what I learned from Jace. you know, or the 12 years old who knew one day I'd be traveling around it. But so there's the origin story, how your company began or how you. There's also the origin story that I help my clients with because I always do like you. Where were you born? What did your parents do? What advice did they give you? You know, what as you're going through your life? And I usually find a moment. So that's why you took this job. That's why you need to tell this story when you're talking about why our new strategy works. There's always a moment that you can tie it. Then there is the happy customer story. And I have a certain formula. So, for example, if we have a conversation with someone who's considering doing business with us, and even on our websites before they even get to us, we need to let them know what our happy customers say about us. And I teach people the form, and this is a simple formula. It's situation, solution, success. So if someone said, well, could you give me a reference? Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you call Dan Maddox or why don't you call whoever? And then you tell the story. And every entrepreneur needs an arsenal of stories of the different clients so that you can find match one to who you're talking to. And I would say, now imagine your now happy customer when they were a prospect called and said, help. And clearly articulated their problem. Now, I know they didn't. And as Michael Hague says, a story has to be true. It does not have to be 100%
1: accurate. <laughs> I remember because that.
0: What might be a six-month sales cycle, you're squeezing into one conversation. It's true. It's just not 100% accurate because you've got three minutes to tell your story, not six months. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, so it's help clearly articulate. So you might say when well, when I first met Dan, he said, "Help clear and then what his problem was. That's the situation and the solution. So what we did is he's we went through and and this is very much like your situation. We did this, 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 our three step methodology of this. and then if Dan were here, he would tell you, I would not have believed it possible that. So the situation and the success are in the words of your happy customer.
1: I, I love that. Yeah. You know, do you remember speaking of, and I'm sure you do, business and show business, the difference between the two or how they correlate? If you remember that, can you explain a little bit more about the, the contrast or, or how they relate?
0: Well, one, security is knowing your lines. That is an old showbiz adage. Then if you, well, if you look at screenwriting and when I first met Michael, I was quoting another screenwriter and he <laughs> put his hand up and said, you're quoting my competitor. Why not you quoted me? To which I said, where oh, the heck funny. are you? So now I, as you know, but David Freeman in his class said, the opening scene of a movie is called the flavor scene. That's when we know this is going to be a thriller. Or, but after the opening of a movie, that's when you elbow your spouse or your next or your friend and say, oh, oh, I'm glad we're going to be here. This is going to be good. And I relate the first three pages of a screenplay, first three minutes of a movie to the first 30 seconds of a sales presentation or a presentation. It's the flavor scene. The purpose of the opening of any conversation Or presentation or sales presentation is to arouse interest in the subject, which is why you can't sound the same as everybody else. Then, of course, Hollywood knows how to tell a good story, so we need to learn to tell good stories. What screenwriters learn, that you have to build into your characters what they call rooting principles. Hey, we want the guy to get the girl you know we we you know we want him to get his revenge well i said that in in uh i believe it was australia rooting has a whole different meaning in australia <laughs> than it does here rooting for the hero um so they are some so there has to be you know there are reasons we like characters You know, you might think, you know, why would someone like a mafia boss? Well, because the writers, they give him frailties just like us. They give him a sense of humor like us. We love people who make us laugh. They they like someone that you like in the movie or the TV show. So that's why they are, again, that's attributed characteristics just as the attributed charisma. So that's some of the parallels.
1: Got it. So basically, because we're so up to want to see a movie because of the experience and the storytelling, if you bring that into business as best as you, you, you can, that will help your storytelling. That will help your conversation with, uh, with your customer or prospect. You know, I, I got to thank you, though, because let's discuss silence, which you're a queen of. Uh, pauses, ums, you knows, you can't imagine how many ums, you knows, like I edit out of a podcast. It's a rarity. It's a rarity to speak with someone who speaks like a pro. So what advice would you give our seven hatters in helping them eliminate or at least reduce those awkward ums and you knows? And I know I worked on it for many, many years. I was a big, you know, guy. Uh, And I just I think I started with a rubber band. So maybe maybe that's that's what it is in my case. But what what are your what's your advice?
0: One, you will not improve what you're not aware of. It's amazing how many of my clients send me recordings. I'll say before we meet, can I listen to a recording? And I will say, have you watched it? You're putting me through this agony and you didn't watch it yourself. (laughs) So you have to be aware. And the second is get comfortable with silence. Yeah. The third is speak in shorter sentences, especially if you are talking to somebody, you know what you're talking about, so it's easy to talk fast. Your audience doesn't. So if you speak, now I say, whether you're having a conversation, whether you're giving a presentation, we speak to be remembered and repeated. So if you speak in shorter sentences, one idea or a sentence, when you pause, you get to think what comes next. So just program yourself to get comfortable assignments. Think what comes next. However, if you're, if your prospect or your audience is listening, you have to give them time to think, yeah, that makes sense. Huh, never thought about it that way. So just as you're having a conversation, you go back and forth, you might say, well, can you give us an example? Well, what's another technique? Or I don't agree with that. Can you help me understand why you would think that way? You have to give your audience time to think. That makes sense. Never thought of it that way. Let me write that down. The natural pauses will help the flow of the conversation help you. And you can breathe in pauses, which keeps the energy going. Review what you said. Even if you ever say, I know with a lot of my clients, if it's a prospect call or getting ready for an engagement, or if I'm coaching someone, I record them to send to them. You know, I listen, oh, my God. You know, even I beat myself up. How could I have started three sentences with so in three minutes? <laughs> So so you will not improve what you're not aware of. You have to review, get comfortable with silence, speak in shorter sentences, one idea a sentence. That will make it easier. And for professionals, if, for example, you had a presentation you put together for your service club, you, you have a call... Sales presentation you're working on. Yes, record it. Have it transcribed. Look at what you are saying in black and white. Now, some of my coaching clients, they charge $25,000 before they come to me. Now, in that case, they've got their presentation. It's the tiny changes that make a difference. So you have your script, You get a yellow highlighter. You highlight all the eyes. It is not possible to talk and not say I. However, how can you start sentences with different ways? So we have to focus on what I would call the I versus you ratio. It's simple as I'm going to talk about no, what you will hear is. In the next 45 minutes, what you will hear is. Or in the next 30 minutes, I'm. You will decide the best decision you can make for your association, your members. So, you see, you you focus language. So, you take all the eyes. Then, you might take all these irritations the uh, ums, you know, er, uh, but, you know, all that. So, you look at this in color, <laughs> your black and white script. In color, and you might take different highlighters, repetitive phrases, and we all have them. And then, if you have a transcript, the transcriptionist, and I like to pay a little more and have people do it. <laughs> if you have a paragraph with no commas, you didn't stop talking because the transcriptionist writes down what you said. So then the next lesson is i would say speaking verbal punctuation we would a comma be we would a period be we a new paragraph so if you are the end of a sentence or the end of a paragraph before you introduce the next idea and the second benefit of doing business with us the second reason you might be interested in that is a paragraph you're going to have a longer pause so just start thinking verbal punctuation so these are a few ways so if you look at your script so then what you do you look at your script and you rewrite what you're saying a better way and then if this is if these are stories you tell all the time, if this is a professional speaker, or if this is a speech for an executive that we work very hard on, I'll say record the new tight script and then listen to it all your time. While you're getting ready, talk with it. You're building a new, fresher way into your body.
1: So when you're editing these scripts and you're so precise in the language and the frequency of words and where they're placed in the sentence, Does the professional speaker, and I'm going to go professional because I'm pretty sure the non-professional won't do this. Do they memorize the entire script or do they use a teleprompter?
0: No. How is it possible to remember? For a professional speaker, is going to charge $25,000. You're expected to, you know, you're expected to know it. So because it's your script, it's just a new way of saying it. And there will only be phrases or segments within it. Now, some of my clients use teleprompters. They they do. They're executives, and especially with Zoom meetings, you know, if it's virtual, if they're recording it for their website, I would encourage them to have a teleprompter. However, yeah, you have to write it. This is the difference between a speech coach and a speechwriter, and I, I'm an award-winning speechwriter as well. But however, the difference is, many of my colleagues in the Professional Speech Writers Association, they don't even meet their clients. They have to write speeches. Well, for me, I might rewrite what they said, but I need to hear their stories. And you have to write, if you're going to read it in a teleprompter, the short sentences, words that you can say, some words you can't say. I used to say she was a successful entrepreneur. If people don't Read your introduction in advance. They can't say entrepreneur. You know, if they not suddenly see this word, if it's not a word you use all the time, you can't say it. So, successful business owner, you know, whatever you can't say, change the word. And there are, there are some words we all have, we just they don't, they don't fall, fall flawlessly off your lips. So, yes. replace them. And, and then, because I, I use a teleprompter when I make some videos for the website, first of all, you have to make sure the speed of the teleprompter is right. You have to make sure, you know, you can say all the words. And it's all, and this is the secret for everything. And it's a lesson that Michael Kane learned when he was a young actor.
1: Wow. Tell us.
0: Rehearsal is the word performance is the relaxation. So whether it's a speech, it's a webinar, it's pre-recorded for your website, whatever it is, rehearse, 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 and then you'll have fun. I tell my clients, I want you to know your sales presentation or your speech so well you can forget it. If your spouse elbowed you at three in the morning, uh, you woke up, no coffee, and said, so, I'll never forget the first time I met Larry Mariattini. It is so programmed into you. Then you can focus on the audience and have fun.
1: Absolutely. You know, Steve Jobs used to practice, if I believe, uh, Duarte was the one yeah. that taught him, I believe, 90 hours for a one-hour presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So how did, how did COVID affect your speaking business? Can you elicit the same type of emotion on Zoom than you did on stage? What are the challenges and how did you pull that off?
0: I'd like to say to my friends, the quality of my life went up more than my income went down in COVID. <laughs> <laughs> because I've loved being at home. Now, at this point in my career, of course, I speak on stages. However, I really don't make my living speaking on stages. I make my living working with executives, with sales teams, with engineers. So, for example, an average assignment for me is coach 20, 40, 100 engineers that are all over the world for our upcoming in-person and now virtual meetings. So, for probably seven years, way before the pandemic, a good portion of how I made my living was in Zoom. Even before Zoom was invented, I had my own virtual studio that people came into. So for me, if anything, my demand went up, not down. And, and it's, it's a lot less frantic. Packing and unpacking takes so much time, of course, especially as a woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, I would say now, again, I am lucky. I don't live paycheck to paycheck. I have a very nice home. I live alone. I have technical support downstairs, which makes all my virtual meetings. Uh, easier with you know it looks like I could launch a spaceship from my <laughs> from my office here or my Spencer friend friends say how do you do that I said, well I don't know Harold says push this button and this happens <laughs> however, growing up listening to my parents stories from World War Two, I realize you again I'm a lucky person. This is a mild inconvenience. And wearing masks, of course, I'm a woman who likes to make up. It is a mild inconvenience compared to what prior generations had to put up with. Yeah. And I was talking to my sister-in-law's sister, who is a very big deal in the healthcare world in England. And I said, how long are we going to be wearing? we be been wearing masks for the rest of our lives. And she said, well, we're going to be wearing masks for the next two years. And there is no real hope for any of us until the third world is vaccinated. America is very generous with what we're exporting. However, not everyone in America is vaccinated. So I don't care what your political ideals are. You have to be safe. We grew up with having vaccinations for all our childhood. You know, this is miraculous how fast they've had vaccines. So I would just say we all have to do our part. Just as my mother said in World War II, every, the British were at their best because everyone looked out for their neighbours because they were all in the same boat. And we have to look out after our neighbours and do what we have to do to be safe for ourselves and everyone around us.
1: As a speaker, are you looking to come back to the circuit and reduce your time on Zoom uh, if everything comes back to at least a more safer, safer place?
0: This month, I have a couple of live presentations. However, I would be very happy to have 80% of my work in Zoom.
1: But then I'm at
0: a different point in my career. I wouldn't have said that 25 years ago. But as a as a 44 year member of the National Speakers Association, you know, I am not. Shame. You know, as I say, my my clients, the good part about being a speech coach. Is that if they like you, you keep the business for years, you know, whereas as a keynote speaker. Usually they want somebody else next to you and they say, we loved you, but we can't have you back for five years. So as I say, I am, although I do speak at conventions, that isn't how I make my living.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's awesome. So a couple of final questions. I know we're short on time. Let's talk about frippicisms. I just love yes. that word. What, what is a frippicism?
0: A frippicism is... One of my quotes and good guest you need to have on is Brian Walter. He's one of the most creative friends of mine He's in the National Speakers Association. And Brian Walter has a company called Extreme Meetings. Anyway, but Brian says we have to Websterize our name. And he said nobody does it better than Patricia Frick. So for those who are not aware or too young, Webster Dictionary, you have yep. to have words associated with your name. So I have frippicisms, which are my quotes. I have fripper sizes because people don't like homework. You have a fripteen-minute break. At Christmas, we have the 12 days of Frippmus. So you <laughs> see, you 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 make your your name interesting. I uh, I'll often close my presentations with. I hope you'll remember me. However, much more important, remember what my name, Fripp, stands for. Frequently reinforce ideas that are productive and profitable. Yeah. So Frippicisms are my quotes. So don't concentrate on making a lot of money. That's a father Frippicism. My mother Frippicism, of course, it's the inside you that counts. Then Another, my probably most reused, reposted Frippacism is don't celebrate closing a sale, celebrate opening a relationship.
1: Wow, I love that. You know, I have a few more. If you don't act as if your name were on the don't, door, it never will, it will be. Never will be. And that, I love and that and one.
0: And that came from a story with my brother and me were in New York and we Anyway, we've been to a movie and we want to see another. And there was a Claude Van Damme film just down the street. We ran around and they'd just begun. But we knew, hey, Claude Van Damme, not a heavy plot. And also we got all these commercials for the upcoming, the trailers. So we said to the young man behind the counter, we know we're late, want to come in two tickets. He said, you can't. We closed the draw. I said, we'll put it in tomorrow. We go through this nobody would take our money all the way up to the manager and so as we walked out we came up with you can tell their name was up, wasn't on the door and if you don't act like see i acted like an entrepreneur when i worked for other people this made me a good employee and if you are working on commission you f- you are self-employed. You're chairman of the board of your own career. Is yeah, another exactly. purpose.
1: Absolutely. You know, the other one's just a couple more before we move on. So tell me what you say you want. Show me one week of your life and I will tell you yeah. <laughs> if you will get it. Yeah. And fact, then uh, I the first-
0: changed that slightly. will t- tell me what you say you want. Show me one week of your life and we'll both know if you'll
1: get yeah. That's awesome. And this this last one is the first 30 seconds and the last 30 seconds have the most impact. But then you said, I just remembered, uh, you you told somebody in an audience Mm -hmm. not to include everything in their speech or the most important things in their speech. Can you like 30 seconds, just comment on that one? Why is that important not to put everything into your speech?
0: It is much better to... Tell your audience or your prospect less. Develop it well so that they can remember. I just analyzed someone's speech and and he said, you know, I went 3,000 miles to give the speech. I wanted to give them their money's worth. And I said, yeah, but they wouldn't got it. You never paused. You kept talking. You wandered around the stage aimlessly. You were trying to be valuable. Your intention was good. The impact was not. Say less, deliver it better, have them remember it.
1: If there's a frippicism out there, that that is the one that everybody needs to, to really focus on and remember. You know, my co-founder, Chris, is going to kill me if I don't ask. So yeah, your, brother, brother. <laughs> your, your brother said discipline is a vehicle of joy. Yes. Uh, do you agree with that, first of all?
0: Yes, it okay. is. I have it on T-shirts, which I wear when I'm working on projects that are difficult to get started with. Yeah, discipline, not an end in itself, but a means to an end. And, of course, my brother's company is called Discipline.
1: Wow. You know, uh, Chris is a huge fan of your brother, Robert. And he wants to know if he was referring to the King Crimson album of the same name, because he says that that album is, in fact, a vehicle of joy.
0: Well, that's very nice. I will pass it on to brother when I talk to him tomorrow.
1: Yeah, please do.
0: (laughs) And... uh, yeah, well, but, but that is not an aphorism or a Fri- Robert Frippesism. It is, it's a way he lives his life.
1: I, I've seen you two speak. You guys have a magic, magical connection. There's no question about it. It's, it shows how much you love each other and how close you are. And I, I just loved watching you two. So I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question of every guest Who did you have to stop being? And who did you need to become to manifest your current success?
0: Well, I had to stop being the little girl in Wimborne who nobody expected much of to become who Patricia Fripp was capable of becoming. And that is asking good questions of interesting people and... Learning to say no when necessary.
1: Hmm. Love that. And we're so capable, all of us, of doing great things. And speaking of great things, tell the seven hatters what you're currently up to, how they can connect with you, as I'm sure they will. What would you like them to know?
0: One, I would like them to know that if they go to fripp, fripp.com, they can get free resources on presentation skills. They can sign up for my weekly speak your news, but we send out information on speaking every week that is very entertaining. If they would like the best presentation skills and sales presentation skills training, click on FRIP, VT, as in FRIP, a virtual training, And for any Robert Fripp fans, if you click on store, Fripp.com store, and my brother and I have recorded four of our live presentations that you can subscribe to. So that's Robert Fripp VT. So everything goes to Fripp VT. There are a thousand blog posts. There's plenty of free information. You look at the bottom, you can see all the Frippacisms which we are updating and adding to and cleaning up. And, and we're having putting together some of the like the sales frippicisms and Robert frippicisms into PDFs that people will be able to download. So that is a January project.
1: I will put everything in the show notes, all the links. And I have to say, out of all my guests, you probably have some of the, the, the most rewarding information online. The first video that i've watched when i researched you was the video on pauses and silence and i was just awestruck i was like told my wife i'm like she's speaking to me she's speaking my language patricia thank you so much for enlightening the seven hatters and being a guest on the seven hats appreciate it
0: my pleasure
1: i hope you enjoyed my conversation with patricia Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as What can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. My initial introduction to Patricia's work was through a video on YouTube titled The Power of the Pause in Public Speaking. Patricia starts by telling the audience to speak a little slower, certainly in the beginning, and then pause. Because in the pause, what you actually do is connect to your audience more. Because they have time to internalize and think about what they've just heard. I have to be honest with you. I've heard that advice so many times as an entrepreneur. But when Patricia said it, it stuck with me. Patricia has a way with words and energy. She knows how to work a room. Her advice on how to reduce or eliminate awkward speech is gold. Number one, you will not improve what you're not aware of. Second, get comfortable with silence. Third, speak in shorter sentences, one idea per sentence. Don't forget, we speak to be remembered and repeated. I want to thank Patricia once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from her wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.